Chapter 7 The Faith of Jesus In every system of knowledge, there's a fundamental idea to be grasped, a core concept around which all other data must be organized. This central dominating idea will determine the character of the subject as a whole and give meaning to every part of it. The core concept, the basic thesis, becomes the criterion by which all subsidiary ideas are evaluated. The Christian faith comes to us in the Bible as a body of information, challenging us to response and action. The source of that information is ultimately God himself, transmitting his message through prophets and teachers, and supremely through his principal representative, Jesus the Messiah. What then is the central core concept of the teaching of Jesus? What forms the heart of his message? What one single idea underlies all his preaching and teaching? What primary idea must be grasped and believed by any who want to follow Jesus? The answer to this question can be discovered by anyone with an ordinary ability to read any version of the Bible and an earnest desire to find out what Jesus taught. The importance of Christianity's key idea, the heart of the gospel, so impressed the writers of the New Testament that they emphasized it over and over again. It's a testament to the extraordinary way in which fundamental concepts can be lost, that Jesus' master idea is very seldom, if ever, presented to the public in late 20th century preaching. Equally amazing is the fact that leaders of organized Christianity admit that they are not proclaiming what Jesus proclaimed as the gospel. A number of master texts spanning the period of time from the opening of Jesus' ministry in Galilee until the death of Paul demonstrate a refreshingly simple concept. The Bible knows of one gospel only for Jew and Gentile alike. It is the gospel about the kingdom of God. I quote, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming God's gospel or good news and saying, the time has come and the kingdom of God is approaching. Repent and believe the gospel. That's in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Another quotation. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Acts 8, verse 12. Another quotation. Paul put his case to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them about Jesus, arguing from the law of Moses and the prophets. This went on from early morning until evening, and some were convinced by what he said, while the rest were skeptical. Acts 28, verses 23 and 24. Another quotation. I solemnly testify in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, 
both to his appearing and his kingdom, herald the message. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Christianity's central idea, three primary witnesses to Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, unanimously declare Jesus to be an evangelist, the bearer of God's gospel about the kingdom of God. Without any possible fear of contradiction, we can assert with complete confidence that the axis around which all Jesus' teaching revolves is the kingdom of God. Mark provides us with a resume of Jesus' entire career. His public ministry is launched with his announcement of the gospel about the kingdom. He came into Galilee and summoned his compatriots to a complete change of mind, repentance, and to belief in and commitment to the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. In so doing, they would be aligning themselves with God's great design for the rescue of the human race. Luke emphasizes the fundamental importance of the gospel about the kingdom. The first piece of information about Jesus given us by Luke, when the birth of the Messiah is announced, concerns the kingdom of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Luke 1 verses 32 and 33. As any Jew knew well, this was a statement about Jesus' kingship in the coming kingdom of God. Jesus himself gave a clear definition of the underlying purpose of his ministry with these words. I quote, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That is the reason for which I was sent. That's Luke 4, verse 43. This text opens up the mind of Jesus for us and provides the key to the whole Christian religion, which must be based on his teaching. Luke immediately goes on to tell us that Jesus was preaching the message, or the word, Luke 5, verse 1. This is Luke's and the New Testament shorthand term for the Christian message or gospel of salvation. A definition of the content of the message is provided by Matthew when he reports that Jesus was a preacher of the message about the kingdom. Matthew 13, verse 19. Again, Luke calls it, quote, the word of God. Luke 11 Mark simply the word, Mark 4, verse 14. In his celebrated comparison of the sower to the evangelist who meets with varying responses, Jesus describes the gospel as vital information needing to take deep root within the human heart. A grasp of this message enables the convert to embark on the Christian journey towards the kingdom. Nothing could be more crucial for our spiritual welfare than to gain an understanding of this message.
It is one message and one message only, the good news about the kingdom of God. Luke 4, verse 43, and Luke 5, verse 1, equate the message about the kingdom with the message of God. And so the message, or the word, or the gospel, and the testimony are all interchangeable terms. All subsequent references to the word and the gospel throughout the New Testament should be traced back to and clarified by the more comprehensive parent text, namely the gospel about the kingdom of God. This will impart harmony and continuity to the entire New Testament, as well as linking it to the earlier revelation in the Hebrew Bible. As John Bright wrote, and I quote, the concept of the kingdom of God involves, in a real sense, the total message of the Bible. Not only does it loom large in the teachings of Jesus, it is to be found in one form or another through the length and breadth of the Bible. To grasp what is meant by the kingdom of God is to come very close to the heart of the Bible's gospel of salvation. That's a quotation from John Bright in his book, The Kingdom of God, written in 1953. The spreading of the gospel message was of paramount importance to Jesus and the disciples he chose to assist him. I quote, He went around the whole of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's in Matthew 4, verse 23, and Matthew 9, verse 35. Another quotation, He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 2. He charged his followers with the responsibility of spreading the news about the kingdom. I quote, Allow the dead to bury their dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 60. Jesus defined the ultimate purpose of life for his followers. It was the quest for the kingdom of God. I quote, Seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, verse 33. The kingdom was to be the supreme treasure for which no sacrifice would be too great. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom was also the object of their fervent prayer. Quote, Thy kingdom come. Matthew 6, verse 10. An understanding of God's kingdom plan required a gift of illumination granted to those who wholeheartedly followed Jesus and his teaching, but withheld from the superficial disciple. You'll find that in Matthew 13, verses 13 to 16. The same subject of the kingdom dominated the conversation between Jesus and the disciples after his death and resurrection, when the Lord reappeared to his chosen representatives for almost six weeks, I quote, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's in Acts 1 verse 3. In a final conversation with Jesus, 
before he departed from the earth, the disciples asked whether the moment for the restoration of the kingdom had now arrived. Acts 1 verse 6. Information vital to the potential believer. Luke informs us about the facts put to potential converts before they could be baptized into the Christian faith. His statement reads like an early creed, providing an ideal model in summary form of the essence of evangelism. I quote, When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. That's from Acts 8 and verse 12. Philip was faithfully following the example of Jesus' own evangelism. Jesus had made belief in the kingdom of God gospel the basis of salvation. I quote, Jesus said, When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the devil comes and snatches away the word which has been sown in his heart or mind, so that he cannot believe it and be saved. Salvation was related to the Messiah's promise of a supreme reward to his disciples. They were to assist in the rulership of the new world or new age of the coming kingdom. I quote, I assign to you a kingdom as my Father has assigned a kingdom to me, and you shall sit on thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. Earlier Jesus had promised, and I quote, Fear not, little flock, your Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. An invitation to kingship in the kingdom was evidently the basis of Jesus' appeal to his audiences. No wonder then that Paul, faithfully imitating Jesus, could sum up his whole ministry by calling it a preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Acts 20, verse 25. Luke wishes us never to forget what the apostles always proclaimed as the gospel. He goes on to inform us that Paul preached the kingdom of God for three months in Corinth, Acts 19, verse 8. In order to leave no room for doubt or misunderstanding, Luke ends his second treatise, the book of Acts, by describing Paul's activity in Rome. For two years he preached, quote, the good news about the kingdom of God and taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in Acts 28, verse 31. This was the gospel message of salvation which Paul addressed to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Acts 28, verses 23, 28, and 31. The same gospel of the kingdom is to be heralded throughout the whole world as essential preparation for the kingdom's final arrival at the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus in power 
to rule on earth. In Jesus' own words, and I quote, this gospel about the kingdom will be preached in the whole world and then the end shall come. Matthew 24, verse 14. With this evidence before us, and there is much more, we may say that no one honestly in search of biblical truth can miss recognizing the principal idea behind the Christian message of salvation. The kingdom of God is undoubtedly the heart and core of Jesus and the apostles' gospel preaching, the basic idea around which true Christianity revolves. The scholarly consensus on the mission of Jesus. There's no room for disagreement that the kingdom of God was indeed the subject of Jesus' entire message and mission. I quote, on one central point, there's a strong consensus of opinion. The consensus can be summarized thus. The central theme in the preaching and life of Jesus was the kingdom of God. That's a quotation from Thomas Groom in his book, Christian Religious Education, written in 1980. This author points out, however, the extraordinary fact that in the message preached by the church, since those apostolic times, the kingdom of God has not occupied a central place. That's also from the words of Thomas Groom in his book, Christian Religious Education. Further distinguished names will confirm the absolute centrality of the message about the kingdom in the teaching of Jesus. This term, kingdom of God, is at the center of Jesus' proclamation. That's from Hans Küng in his book on being a Christian, written in 1976. John Sabrino writes as follows, The most certain historical datum about Jesus' life is that the concept which dominated his preaching, the reality which gave meaningfulness to all his activity, was the kingdom of God. This fact and its implications are of fundamental importance. It provides us with two essential keys to understanding Jesus. First, Jesus is not the central focus of his own teaching. This fact is commonly admitted. As Karl Rahner put it, Jesus preached the kingdom of God, not himself. That's from the book Christology at the Crossroads, written in 1978. While it is true that Jesus also made exclusive claims for himself, his message nevertheless centered on the kingdom. Other prominent witnesses corroborate our thesis. I quote, The whole message of Jesus focuses upon the kingdom of God. As from Norman Perrin's book, The Language of the Kingdom, written in 1976. It is generally admitted that the focal point of Jesus' message was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That's from Reginald Fuller's book, The Double Commandment of Love, 
in his Essays on the Love Commandment, written in 1978. At the turn of the century, the British scholar Archibald Robertson, delivering the Bampton Lectures on the Kingdom of God, had asserted, and I quote, There can be no question that in our Lord's teaching, the Kingdom of God is the representative and all-embracing summary of his distinctive mission. Throughout, his message is the good news of the kingdom. That's from the Bampton Lectures entitled Regnum Dei, published in 1901. A chorus of distinguished writers on the Bible proclaims the fact that Christianity is a religion whose leading idea is the kingdom of God. I quote, The kingdom of God is the central theme of the teaching of Jesus, and it involves his whole understanding of his own person and work. That's from Alan Richardson in his A Theological Word Book of the Bible, written in 1957. The kingdom of God is, in a certain and important sense, the grand central theme of all scripture. This reign of God arises out of his own sovereign nature, and it was reflected in the dominion bestowed by God on the first Adam. It was forfeited quickly by reason of the sin of man, it has been restored judicially in the last Adam, and it will be realized on earth in the final age of human history. And it reaches out endlessly beyond history, where we behold a throne which, as John explains, is, quote, the throne of God and the Lamb, in Revelation 22, verse 3. In the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God, we have the Christian philosophy of history. That's in A.J. McLean's book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, written in 1968. The New Testament is not less theocratically undergirded and no less eschatologically oriented towards the kingdom of God than the Old Testament. That statement is from T.C. Friedson, Theocracy and Soteriology in his Essays on Old Testament Hermeneutics, published in 1979. The ministry of Jesus revolves around a fascinating term, the kingdom of God. Everything else is related to it and radiates from it, as from Leonard Goppelt, in his Theology of the New Testament, written in 1981. The kingdom of God is the central point in Christ's teaching. The fundamental teachings of Jesus naturally group themselves round this central theme. That's a quotation from the Dictionary of Christ and the Apostles. The kingdom of God gives us a coherent center around which to assemble the diverse parts of Scripture. John Reumann says this, Ask any hundred New Testament scholars, 
around the world, Protestant, Catholic, or non-Christian, ask them what the central message of Jesus of Nazareth was, and the vast majority of them, perhaps every single expert, would agree that his message centered in the kingdom of God. The modern investigators agree the, quote, good news which Jesus announced had to do with God and his kingdom. But today, when we hear about Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, it sounds strange to our ears and prompts a multitude of questions. There's a tremendous danger for modern men that Jesus' teachings and message, as they are heard read in little snatches in church on Sundays, or are scanned piecemeal by individuals, will seem isolated from each other and atomistic. An item here, a ray of light there, a truth somewhere else, but seldom anything to integrate all of Jesus' teachings into a whole that makes sense as a totality. That is why it is so important to see that Jesus had a central message and that it was about God's kingdom. For it is this theme of the kingdom which integrates all of Jesus' words and deeds. The kingdom of God is a unifying emphasis around which all that Jesus said and did can be arranged. Mark's gospel opens after its brief prologue with a terse statement of good news intended to set the tone for the entire book. as from the book Jesus in the Church's Gospels, written in 1968. An Australian theologian notes the centrality of the kingdom for evangelism. I quote, Naive views which separate the gospel from the kingdom are impossible if we follow biblical guidelines. In the New Testament, especially the evangelists, the gospel is always, quote, the gospel of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is all important, for it defines the nature of the salvation that Jesus came to bring and the gospel that we are therefore called to preach. Our question is, what gospel do we preach? at two minutes to midnight on the doomsday scale. What if we cannot agree on or are not sure of the nature of the very gospel that we preach? End of quotation from R.A. Cole in his article, The Gospel and the Kingdom, What Are They? in a series called Agenda for a Biblical Church written in 1981. In the light of these facts, it is hard to see how Christ can be preached if his gospel of the kingdom is not communicated to potential converts. Uncertainty about the gospel would seem to be an admission of confusion in the church. As Paul stated, I quote, faith comes from hearing and hearing from Messiah's message. That's Romans 10, verse 17. I quote, How, Paul asked, 
can they believe in him whom they have not heard, i.e. preaching? Romans 10, verse 14, New American Standard Version. For this translation, you can consult the International Critical Commentary on Romans by Sande and Hedlam. Paul's point was that the authentic gospel preaching of Jesus must be relayed by evangelists representing the Messiah. In Paul's mind, the message which Jesus had delivered must reach the potential convert. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, I quote, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 2 verse 17. Learning Christ, that expression, was a matter of hearing him and being taught by him just as the truth is in Jesus. You'll find that in Ephesians 4 verse 20 and 21. The apostles had never heard the modern theory that the historical Jesus preaching was for Jews only and that the risen Christ had a different message for Gentiles. Once again, we see how critically important it is to believe in the Jesus of history and to anchor our faith in the gospel of the kingdom as he proclaimed it. On this point, the New Testament shows a wonderful unity. According to the writer to the Hebrews, the Christian gospel was first preached by Jesus himself, and then it was passed on to subsequent generations by faithful witnesses of the same kingdom message. You'll find that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. John warned against the menace of those who do not, quote, bring the teaching of the Messiah, 2 John 7-9. Paul insisted on adherence to, quote, sound words, namely the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. It is agreed on all sides that Jesus' supreme purpose concerned the kingdom of God. At the same time, those who today claim to be propagating the gospel as Jesus preached it say almost nothing about the kingdom. This clearly makes no sense. One obviously cannot have the teacher, Christ, without the teaching, the message of the kingdom. It can be very confusing to say that, quote, the gospel is Christ unless we are thoroughly grounded in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which constantly declare that Jesus' message has an objective reality distinct from himself as the gospel of God, who was his father, of course. I quote, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what Jesus said in Mark 8, verse 35. The subject, Christ, is given a clear compliment in Scripture. He is not a silent Savior, dead on a cross, essential as his death is. 
he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, without his teaching, is not Jesus at all. A Jesus divorced from his Hebrew heritage and background in the Hebrew prophets is a Jesus uprooted from history without sufficient instruction would-be believers will imagine Jesus in a thousand different ways. Hence the importance for Christians of being rooted in the Bible and in the words of Jesus himself. Elizabeth Achtermeyer senses the missing element in contemporary presentations of the Christian message. I quote, one of the central messages of the New Testament, which is now rarely heard by the average churchgoer, is the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That coming was promised in every major theological complex in the Old Testament. The prophets promised the new age of the kingdom on the other side of the judgment of the exile, with a new exodus, as in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 11 to 12. And after wilderness wanderings, described in Isaiah 48, verses 20 to 21, leading to a renewed promised land, Ezekiel 34, verses 25 to 31, where Israel would dwell in faithfulness and security in a new covenant relation with her God, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, and would, by her light, attract all nations into her fellowship, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, and Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8. Israel anticipated that coming kingdom and knew a foretaste of it in her worship. You'll find that in Psalms 47 and Psalms 96 to 99. Throughout most of the pages of the Old Testament, Israel strains forward towards the arrival of the kingdom. That's from Elizabeth Achtermeyer's book, Preaching as Theology and Art, written in 1984. The point should not be missed that Jesus' gospel, quote, is now rarely heard by the average churchgoer. A summary of the New Testament facts. We may gain a sense of the massive importance of the kingdom of God in biblical Christianity by quoting some of the many verses in which Jesus spoke of it, the term kingdom of heaven used only by Matthew is of course the equivalent of the kingdom of God, there are interchangeable terms. Matthew followed the Jewish practice of avoiding the term God and used instead the word heaven. A number of quotations make my point. I quote, Then Jesus traveled through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 4, verse 23. Another quotation, I tell you that many will come from the east and from the west 
and will take their seats with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the natural heirs of the kingdom will be driven out into the darkness outside. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. Another quotation. And Jesus went around all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 9, verse 35. Another quotation. To you disciples, it is granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not. Matthew 13, verse 11. Another quotation. When a man hears the message concerning the kingdom, the devil comes and snatches away the message from his heart so that he cannot believe it and be saved. Matthew 13, 19. Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. Matthew 6, verse 33. Another quotation. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all who violate his laws, and these will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Matthew 13, verse 41. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Listen, everyone who has ears. Matthew 13, verse 43. In this manner, therefore, pray, may thy kingdom come. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Another quotation from Jesus. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, verse 24. Another quotation from Jesus. Command, she replied, that these my two sons may sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Matthew 20, verse 21. Another quotation. I tell you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine till the day that I drink the new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, verse 29. Another quotation. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed throughout the whole world to set the evidence before the nations and then the end will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because for this purpose I was sent. That's in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Another quotation. Shortly after this, Jesus visited town after town and village after village, proclaiming the gospel message of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, verse 1. Another quotation. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cure the sick. Luke 9, verse 2. Another quotation. And receiving them kindly, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 11. Another quotation. Leave the dead, Jesus said, to bury their dead. 
But you go and announce far and wide the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9, verse 60. Another quotation. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's in Luke 12, verse 32. Another quotation. So also, when you see these things happening, the events surrounding the return of Jesus to the earth, you may be sure that the kingdom of God is about to come. That's Luke chapter 21, verse 31. Another quotation. You, however, have remained with me in my trials, and I covenant to give you, as my Father has covenanted to give me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. That's in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. The word judge, which appears in many versions, is properly translated, quote, govern or administer or rule. Compare with that the Old Testament judge, who was a ruler, and also Psalm 2, verse 19, and 1 Maccabees, chapter 9, verse 73. All these quotations will suffice to underline the fact that the kingdom of God is indeed the focus of the ministry and mission of Jesus. The kingdom is overwhelming in its importance and decisive for the meaning of Christianity, the key which unlocks the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus inaugurated his ministry in Galilee by calling on the public to, quote, repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. This is in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. And you'll note that Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 describes the beginning of the gospel. With this resounding command, then, the risen Jesus continues to speak to men and women everywhere. The challenge is as urgent today as it was when first issued by Jesus. The challenge of the Bible is this. Change your minds and your lives and believe in the good news message of salvation, the message about the kingdom of God, which Jesus and the apostles always proclaimed. Again, in the words of Dr. Robertson, distinguished lecturer of the Church of England, the kingdom of God is the Christian answer to the most vital question that man has to solve, the question of the purpose of his being. That's from Archbishop Robertson's Regnum Dei, the Bampton Lectures of 1901. The kingdom expected by Jesus' contemporaries. The kingdom of God, eagerly anticipated by Jesus' fellow countrymen, was undoubtedly a new world order affecting not just a handful of disciples, but the entire earth. The day of the Lord, which was to introduce it, would be a cataclysm like the flood because of its destructive power. you find that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. 
Yet beyond the awful judgment, a renewed, regenerated earth was to emerge and sane, peaceful government would ensure a golden age for all permitted to survive into the new kingdom. Unlike many modern audiences, those who heard Jesus proclaim the kingdom would have been fully aware of what the prophets had said about the coming great turning point in history. I quote, The mortal will be humbled and brought low. Get among the rocks, hide in the dust, at the sight of the terror of Yahweh, at the brilliance of his majesty, when he rises to make the earth quake. Human pride will lower its eyes, the arrogance of men will be humbled. Yahweh alone will be exalted on that day. Yes, that day will be the day of Yahweh Zabaot the Lord of the armies of heaven, against all pride and arrogance, against all that is great to bring it down. Human pride will be humbled, the arrogance of men will be brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted on that day and all idols thrown down. Go into the hollows and the rocks, into the caverns of the earth, at the sight of the terror of Yahweh, at the brilliance of his majesty, when he rises to make the earth quake. That day man will fling to the moles and the bats, the idols of silver and the idols of gold that he made for worship. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. The hope of a new era of peace on earth, following the fearful day of the Lord, is a constant theme of the Hebrew prophets. The expectation about the kingdom, current when Jesus launched his campaign for repentance and belief in the good news, has been clearly documented by historian and theologian alike. The facts they present provide an indispensable guide to the meaning of Jesus' favorite phrase, the kingdom of God. Unless that term is firmly rooted in the first century Hebrew environment, it becomes quite impossible to know what Jesus requires of us with his call for, quote, repentance and belief in the gospel about the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Detached from its context, the kingdom of God has been redefined with almost total disregard for its biblical meaning in various different ways acceptable to our own religious ideas and ideals. It is quite wrong, however, to attribute these ideas to Jesus or call them his gospel. The loss of a proper historical sense for defining the Christian gospel of the kingdom lies at the heart of of all our theological confusion and division. One distinguished historian of Christianity describes the historical setting necessary for grasping the impact made by Jesus and John the Baptist with their announcement of the kingdom. I quote, The expectation of a great deliverance 
and of a golden age of righteousness and peace and prosperity kept alive by the lessons from Scripture which were read and expounded in the synagogues gave birth from time to time to prophets who announced that the great moment was come. That's a quotation from G.F. Moore in his History of Religions, written in 1926. With their proclamation, both Jesus and John the Baptist were calling upon men and women to prepare for the coming divine intervention, the day of the Lord, which in the New Testament is the equivalent of the expected arrival of the kingdom. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles is dominated throughout by the expectation of the coming judgment and the consequent inauguration of the new world order. Every word of their exhortations is directed towards preparing us for the great event. The whole New Testament is a manual of instruction for those preparing to rule with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Apostolic preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the Christian gospel, presupposes an understanding of the Hebrew view of history. Our problem is that audiences are now constantly asked to accept, quote, the gospel in ignorance of the Hebrew frame of reference within which Jesus taught. The result is a misunderstanding which can only be corrected when potential converts are taught the basic vocabulary of the New Testament. It is no solution to reduce the gospel to a message only about the death and resurrection of Jesus. These events most certainly guarantee the future establishment of the kingdom, but the kingdom remains the kingdom foreseen by the prophets. We are still to pray for its coming, Matthew 6, verse 10, and it is the heart of the gospel of salvation. Acts 8, 12, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, Matthew 13, 19, and Luke 8, 12. Man destined to be ruler. The subject of the Christian gospel, the kingdom of God, has its roots deep in the Hebrew scriptures, somewhat unfortunately known to us as the Old Testament, since many professing Christians think of old as practically equivalent to discarded. It is well to remember that Paul referred to the Old Testament as the sacred writings, which are able to give you, you Christians that is, the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith which is in Messiah Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3 verse 15. To be a Christian, therefore, we must acquire the wisdom and understanding found in the sacred revelation of the Hebrew part of our Bible, of our scriptures. The very first command given to man was, quote, to rule over all the earth, Genesis 1.26. We see here the start of the golden thread of the kingdom, which runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, 
Adam was assigned a position as God's vice-regent. Made in the image and likeness of God, man is, so to speak, a facsimile of God, a representation which corresponds to a model. Genesis 1 verse 26. The word image means a hewn or carved statue such as an idol or a sculpture. Both image and likeness are expressions which point back from man to God. God shows himself as the prototype and original of man. That's a quotation from Friedrich Horst in an article Face to Face, written in 1950. The psalmist sings of the exalted position conferred upon man by God. I quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him but a little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. You make him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. Honor and majesty are the attributes of a king. Clothed with honor and majesty, God is coming to rule the world. Psalm 96, verse 6 and 10, and verse 13. Man, therefore, is created to be God's representative ruler on earth. The problem is that, and we quote, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That verse is found in Hebrews 2 verse 8. The reference there is to Jesus as the representative man. Kingship over the promised land. The promise of the land in Genesis 13 verses 14 and 15, etc., as a possession was made to Abraham on condition that he give up everything in obedience to God, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is, so to speak, a model Christian, demonstrating his faith in the unseen God. He is commended for his confidence that despite every evidence to the contrary, Romans 4.18, he would indeed be the father of the promised Messiah. His inheritance included the kingdom of God, which was nothing less than the promised land extended beyond the boundaries of Palestine to the far corners of the earth. The extension of the land to include the world is the basis of Paul's remark that, quote, the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's from Romans 4, verse 13. The paraphrase given by the International Critical Commentary on Romans gives the sense exactly. The promise made to Abraham and his descendants of worldwide messianic rule as it was not dependent on circumcision, so also was not dependent on law, 
but on a righteousness that was a product of faith. If this worldwide inheritance really depended on any legal system, and if it was limited to those who are under such a system, there would be no place left for faith or promise. That's from the International Critical Commentary on Romans. The worldwide messianic rule is a synonym for the kingdom of God, which is the principal theme of the Christian gospel. It must follow that Jesus and the apostles announced, quote, the worldwide messianic rule when they proclaimed the gospel. It's a rule waiting to be publicly manifested at the second coming. All attempts to force it into the present, except in the sense that the message and the power of the future kingdom are already active in advance because Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. Any attempt, though, to overemphasize that present aspect are dislocations of the biblical scheme and account for the confusion which exists on the subject of the kingdom and thus about the faith itself. We are to pray, Thy kingdom come. This means that the kingdom has not yet come. The grand central theme of all scripture is the promise that ideal government will be brought to the earth when Jesus as Messiah, seed of Abraham and David, Matthew 1 verse 1, returns to rule. Bible readers should be encouraged and humbled to know the meaning of their calling as, quote, children of Abraham, co-heirs and prospective co-rulers with Messiah. Blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth, Revelation 5, verse 10. They came to life in resurrection and ruled as kings with Messiah for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 4. If we suffer with him, we shall reign as kings with him, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. All things belong to you. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. God has not subjected to angels the inhabited earth of the future, which is our theme, but he has subjected it to Jesus and his followers. Hebrews 2, verse 5. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Psalm 115, verse 16. He who overcomes will rule the nations. Revelation 2, verse 26. Take charge of ten cities. Luke 19, verse 17. Rule over many things. Matthew 25, verse 23. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His descendants will be mighty on earth. He has made known to the people the power of his works by giving them the heritage of the nations. He raises the poor from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. That's Psalm 112 verse 2, 111 verse 6, and 113 verses 7 and 8. 
walk in a manner worthy of God who is calling you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. Once again, the voices of distinguished commentators should be heeded as they complain about a serious absence of understanding on the part of church-going Bible readers. I quote, while the majority of Christendom has been in the habit of thinking of, quote, heaven as the place for which the children of God are destined, Jesus makes the startling statement that the meek are to possess the earth. This accords with the prophetic and apocalyptic traditions almost in their entirety. The kingdom of God comes from heaven to earth, and earth will be fitted to be the scene of such rule. That's from G.R.B. Zimari's book, Jesus and the Kingdom of God, written in 1986. Another quotation. How does it come to pass that with open Bibles before them, men and women should be wrong, not so much about certain details with respect to the gospel, but about the whole thing, about the very essence of the gospel? It is quite understandable that there should be certain points, certain facets of truth, about which people are not clear and about which there may be a division of opinion. The gospel is many-sided. It has many aspects. So this is not surprising. But I do suggest that it is indeed very surprising that at the end of the 20th century, men and women should still be all wrong about what the gospel is wrong about its foundation, wrong about its central message, wrong about its objective, and wrong about the way in which one comes into relationship with it. And yet, that is the very position we are confronted with at this time. That's a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones in a broadcast called The Signs of the Kingdom. Most people have a wrong view of the kingdom. We will not be flirting around on clouds. The kingdom will be a government which will operate in perfect righteousness. There will be people in positions of authority who were faithful servants of Jesus Christ on earth. Just as a good worker gets a promotion, so Christ's faithful stewards will get promotions in the kingdom. Some will manage ten cities. That's from Tony Evans in a writing, What a Way to Live, written in 1997. Everything in the Gospels points to the idea that life in the kingdom of God in the age to come will be life on the earth, life transformed by the kingdom of God when his people enter into their full blessing. That's from Matthew 19, verse 28. And the quotation is from George Eldon Ladd in his A Theology of the New Testament, 1974. We shall dwell in glorified bodies on the glorified earth. This is one of the great Christian doctrines 
that has been almost entirely forgotten and ignored. Unfortunately, the Christian Church, I speak generally, does not believe this, and therefore does not teach it. It has lost its hope, and this explains why it spends most of its time in trying to improve life in this world in preaching politics. But something remarkable is going to be true of us, according to the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 3. Here's a quotation from Paul. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law against the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall rule the world? This is Christianity. This is the truth by which the New Testament church lived. It was because of this that they were not afraid of their persecutors. This was the secret of their endurance, their patience, and their triumphing over everything that was set against them. That quotation is from Martin Lloyd-Jones, his commentary on Romans, written in 1976. The hope for just government on earth as the basis of Jesus' gospel. The tension between, quote, the present evil state of things, Galatians 1 verse 4, and the hope of the coming kingdom of God gives a sense of excitement and drama to the whole Bible. A coherent plot, so to speak, runs throughout the scriptures. Adam is created with a divine office. He sells out, so to speak, to Satan. After being outwitted by the cunning of the devil, the arch-villain of the drama. The first pair thus, quote, vote for the evil ruler, and this tendency to submit to Satan is perpetuated in subsequent generations. The accumulating rebellion reaches a crisis in Genesis 6, where evil angelic beings, fallen sons of God, as we see also in Psalm 29 verse 1, Psalm 89 verse 6, Daniel 3 verse 5, and Job 38 7, these evil angelic beings interfere with the human genetic system to produce a race of giants. This terrible condition on earth calls for a world catastrophe at the flood, in which only eight persons survive the judgment. The descendants of Noah do no better than their predecessors. A second race of tyrants is born of the hybrid angelic human marriages, so-called. You can find that in Genesis 6, verse 4, Numbers 13, 33, and also Jude, verse 6. The divine solution for rescuing man from his apparently incorrigible wickedness lies in the promise of the, quote, seed of Abraham, who is Christ, according to Galatians 3, verse 16. The hope for ultimate deliverance from satanic governments, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, will be fulfilled only when the, quote, seed of the woman, 
of Genesis 3 verse 15 puts an end forever to our present evil world systems by crushing the serpent. Romans 16 verse 20. This will happen when ownership of the earth passes to its rightful heirs, Christ and his faithful followers. Dominion over the earth was destined for man in Genesis. That rule will become a reality when the second Adam, man as he was intended to be, takes over the kingdoms of this world. Revelation 11 verse 15 and, quote, rules in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2. With the Messiah at that inauguration of a new world government will be, quote, those who volunteer freely in the day of Messiah's power. Psalm 110 verse 3. His freshly invigorated people enjoying new life as resurrected immortal beings, will assist Jesus in his task of establishing the new society on earth. With this career before them, Christians are the genuine New Age people preparing for the advent of Jesus. Emphasis should be placed on the fact that it is the gentle who are destined for this bright future. Those believers who continue to threaten their enemies and fellow believers in other lands with nuclear extinction should question whether they belong to the category of whom Jesus speaks. The Sermon on the Mount sets out the qualities of character and behavior required in those who hope to inherit the kingdom. Obedience through the Spirit is demanded by Jesus. I quote, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7 verse 24. The main thrust of Jesus' message is no less relevant to us in the 20th century and the 21st century than when he first delivered it in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. The kingdom has not yet come, and its announcement worldwide must precede its arrival. Matthew 24, verse 14. While Christians await the return of the Master, they are challenged to develop the character suitable for their future function as members of the Royal Messianic Administration. All of Jesus' parables of the kingdom teach lessons about the supreme importance of making the kingdom the objective of human existence. The faith of Jesus. Faith in Jesus has been reduced in many theological systems to believing only in his death and resurrection. The apostles, however, urge us to an imitation of Jesus. We are to have, quote, the faith of Jesus. We are not only to believe in him, but believe what he believed. The faith of the historical Jesus is the model for Christians and should not be relegated to antiquity or so-called primitive Christianity, as though all that counts now 
is faith in a risen Christ, divorced from the actual Jesus who lived and taught. A simple retranslation of the phrase faith in Christ as the faith of Christ helps to reattach us to the faith as Jesus practiced it. As many commentators have observed, Paul spoke of having, quote, faith like Jesus in Romans 3, verse 26. Using the same phrase, he speaks of the faith of Abraham in Romans 4, verse 16. There's no reason to translate the one phrase as the faith of Abraham and the other as faith in Jesus when the Greek construction is the same. The book of Revelation defines Christians as those who have the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, verse 12. The faith of Jesus includes also the faithfulness of Jesus. His trusting obedience to the covenant and his single-minded dedication to the proclamation of the kingdom. Faith in Jesus is in no way diminished when we think also of the faith as he modeled it. The gospel of Jesus should not be understood as just a gospel about him, but the gospel as he preached it. This will bring us into line with the much-neglected testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also John in chapter 3, as the basis of the Christian faith. It will refocus our attention on the message of the Messiah, which is all too often swallowed up in vague phrases about, quote, preaching Christ as though he, quote, is the gospel. It was with good reason that Jesus spoke of suffering for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, which is equivalent to, quote, me and my words. Mark 8, 35 and 38. John's gospel continuously emphasizes the need to believe the words of Jesus. You find that in John 4, verse 41 and 50, John 5, 24, verse 34, verse 38 and 47, John 6, 63 and 68, John 7, 16, John 8, 31, verse 37, 38, 43, 47 and 52, also in John 12, 46 to 50, John 14, verse 23 and 24, John 15, verse 7, John 17, verse 8, and 14 and 17. Much is said about receiving Christ in modern evangelism and very little about receiving his words, as in John 17, verse 8. John's Gospel continuously emphasizes the need to believe the words and word of Jesus. A fact which should remind us that John believed with no less intensity than Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is the center of true faith.
Jesus' expectation of a dramatic end to present governments. A major element in the Gospel of Jesus is his account of events destined to occur in the Middle East just prior to his own arrival in the power of the kingdom. No aspect of New Testament teaching has suffered more at the hands of hostile criticism than those passages which contain a prediction of future events. The notion that Jesus may have been the vehicle of communication about what is going to happen seems to be most unpopular with the scholarly world. Jesus gave an essentially straightforward outline of what may be expected to occur as a prelude to his arrival in a long discourse recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, he answered the question posed to him by his most intimate disciples. When will these things be, that is, the tearing down of a temple, Matthew 24, verse 2, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew 24, verse 3. Because of a tendency among commentators to ignore the background of Jesus' thinking in the book of Daniel, to which he expressly points us in Matthew 24, verse 15, when he speaks of the desolating horror or the abomination of desolation referred to in Daniel 8, verse 13, Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. Jesus expected this desolating horror, abomination of desolation, in the holy place. Many have attempted an explanation of the Olivet Discourse divorced from the outline of events already supplied by Daniel. The disciples are evidently familiar with Daniel's vision of the future just prior to the inauguration of the kingdom. Their question about the end of the age, as Mark records it, Mark 13, verse 4, is phrased, in fact, in words drawn from Daniel 12, verse 7, referring to the climax of the distressing events destined to precede the establishment of the kingdom, when, quote, all these things will be fulfilled. See, for example, Daniel 12, verse 7 in the Septuagint for a full account of the parallels between Daniel and the Olivet Discourse. Please see Lars Hartmann's book, Prophecy Interpreted. Daniel had spoken in a unified set of prophetic declarations found in chapters 2, 7, 8, 9, 11, and 12 of a final wicked tyrant, the last, quote, king of the north, as in Daniel 11, verses 21 to 45. This person would persecute the faithful during a period of extreme trouble, but he would be destroyed just prior to the resurrection of the saints to take part in the kingdom. Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verses 31 to 45, Daniel 12, verses 1 to 3, and compare with all that Matthew 13, 38 to 43. The picture drawn by Daniel describes a final, 
short outburst of tribulation on the faithful at the hands of the wicked ruler who interferes with the temple by stopping sacrifices for a short period, the last half of the 70th heptad, or period of seven years, mentioned in Daniel 9, verse 27. To this, quote, abomination of desolation, described by Daniel, see Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus referred as he gave his inspired vision of end-of-the-age events. The circumstances of Daniel's abomination have a definite shape to them. The abomination is set up by a king of the north and for a period of 1290 days just preceding the resurrection and the return of Jesus. These facts will not fit the history surrounding events in AD 70. The career of Titus is quite unlike the description of Daniel's final ruler and that of Nero comes no closer to fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. Commentators have not paid attention to Jesus' claim to be working from already existing material in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Daniel. This is symptomatic of much more general abandonment of the Old Testament. The account given by Daniel certainly did not find its complete fulfillment in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who persecuted the Jews savagely in the second century BC. Jesus obviously reads Daniel as predicting the coming of a wicked tyrant at a time very close to the end of the age when, and I quote, the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. That's Daniel 12, verse 3, quoted by Jesus in Matthew 13, 43. As long as the framework provided by Daniel is not abandoned, no one will make the mistake of supposing that the events of AD 70 and the destruction of the temple at that time satisfy the predictions of Jesus. It is clear that there was no period of seven years at the time of Jerusalem's invasion by the Romans, during which a cessation of sacrifices occurred for half of the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. Daniel described a time of unparalleled distress, lasting for 1290 days and ending with the resurrection of the dead. You'll find that in Daniel 12, verses 2, 7, and 11, referring back to Daniel 11, verse 31, when the abomination was set up and the sacrifice stopped. The evil agent, portrayed by Daniel as the, quote, king of the north, cannot have been Titus, who anyway did not, quote, come to his end in Palestine after battling with the king of the south. And you can look up Daniel 9.26 and 11.45, along with Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45. By no possible stretch of the imagination can the facts of Daniel's prophecy be made to fit with the events of A.D. 70. A.D. 70 was not the end of the age. A technical expression, also drawn from Daniel, 
for the time of the manifestation of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, when, as Jesus said, the harvest of salvation would come and the righteous would be glorified. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 and 43. When Jesus responded to the question about the fate of the temple, he did not know how much time would elapse before his return. He specifically denied knowledge of the day and the hour of his coming, Mark 13, verse 32, and later told the disciples it was not for them, quote, to know the times and seasons which the Father had set in his own authority. These clear statements of ignorance prove not only that Jesus was not omniscient, but also that his assertion that this generation would not pass until all these things have happened does not mean that his arrival in power would happen within 40 years. It is impossible for Jesus to have said to the disciples, you are not to have knowledge of times and seasons and at the same time to have given them earlier a prediction of the end within 40 years. As Jesus and the disciples looked out on the temple complex, both he and the disciples knew the outline of prophecy contained in the writings of Daniel. There would be trouble in the temple and, quote, great tribulation, Daniel 12, verse 1, Matthew 24, verse 21, in the land, just before the coming of the kingdom. The question posed by the disciples assumes this program given by Daniel. They naturally inquire about the destruction of the temple and the second coming as closely connected events. Jesus' answer assumes the same connection. Since Daniel had described a terrible invasion of the temple just before the resurrection of the dead, which marks the arrival of the kingdom. Jesus did not know whether the actual temple they were viewing would in fact be the temple to be invaded by the final future Antichrist. What he did know was that any temple constructed in the age prior to his coming again would be destroyed in order to allow for the building of a purified temple in the age of Messiah's reign on earth. You'll find that in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9. Hebrew thinking, as we have already noted, quote, grasps a totality. Any temple built at different times on the Temple Mount may be described as, quote, this temple. Clear evidence of this synthetic way of thinking is proved by the words of the prophet Haggai, who can speak of, quote, this temple as different buildings existing at widely separated periods of time. The temple which Haggai's readers viewed in 520 BC is the, quote, same temple as the one built earlier by Solomon, although a different building. I quote, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Haggai 2 verse 3. Looking to the future, 
Haggai can report the Lord as saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, a prediction of the day of the Lord, Hebrews 12:26, and I will fill this house with glory, Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7. This house now means a house of the future, far superior to the Temple of Solomon or that of the 6th century. I quote, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. Any temple built on the one site can be called this temple. Misunderstanding this very non-Western way of thinking, commentators have struggled to determine what part of Jesus' Olivet Discourse was a prediction of Titus' invasion of the temple in AD 70, and what part was a description of his second coming. Once it's realized that Jesus is merely elaborating on a scheme of prophecy already given by Daniel, there'll be no need to argue that he predicted two events separated by at least 1900 years. I note that Matthew describes the Great Tribulation, following the pattern in Daniel, as happening immediately before the return of Christ. Matthew 24, verse 29. Mark's connection is no less clear. Mark 13, verse 24. Luke likewise has in mind an end-time invasion of Jerusalem immediately preceding, quote, the signs in the sun, moon, and stars, Luke 21, verses 23 to 25. The final events of Luke 21 are, quote, days of vengeance, when all things which are written may be fulfilled, Luke 21, verse 22. This goes far beyond events in AD 70 and causes dismay, quote, among nations, Luke 21, verse 25, and among people in the inhabitable earth, Luke 21, verse 26, not just in Israel. The modern theory that A.D. 70 saw the arrival of Jesus at his coming fails to see that much more is entailed in Jesus' account of the end than the destruction of Israel in the first century. Misunderstanding this very non-Western way of thinking, commentators have struggled to determine what part of Jesus' Oliver Discourse was a prediction of Titus' invasion of the temple in AD 70, and what part a description of his future second coming. Once it is realized that Jesus is merely elaborating on a scheme of prophecy already given by Daniel, there will be no need to argue that he predicted two events separated by at least 1900 years. As many commentators have observed, it is simply impossible to divide Jesus' prophetic discourse to make it an account of events in AD 70 and his future return. See Luke chapter 21 verses 25 to 31. Jesus is interested in the climax of the age, not in foretelling world history for nearly two millennia, or however much longer it may turn out to be. 
What he foresaw was a terrible time of distress in Judea, triggered by the appearance of an antichrist in the temple. I note that Mark's use of a masculine participle in Mark 13, 14 tells us that he has in mind a human person. And the appearance of an antichrist in the temple would be immediately followed by convulsions in the heavens and this would announce the impending arrival of the Son of Man in glory to take over the reins of world government. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. The loss of vital elements in the Gospel. Jesus' elaborate discourse based on Daniel as predictive prophecy has been unpopular in the church, but this is part and parcel of a Gentile unwillingness to accept the messianic outlook of Jesus. As a result, the gospel, as Jesus taught it, has often been reduced to those elements, such as forgiveness and love, thought to be the timelessly valuable, quote, kernel of the Messiah's teaching, as distinct from its disposable apocalyptic Jewish husk. This appears to us to be a most questionable way to deal with information. Why is it right to, quote, pick and choose from the Messiah's utterances? The church-going public remains largely ignorant of the extraordinarily convoluted theories by which unwanted sections of Jesus' teaching have been set aside. Jesus and the apostles made the kingdom of God the principal theme of all their teaching. The good news message of salvation consisted of information concerning the kingdom of God and the need to prepare for a position in it, including facts, of course, about the death and resurrection of Jesus, which advanced the cause of the coming kingdom. Generally speaking, the churches calling themselves Christian admit that they have never said much about the kingdom. Modern preachers do not preach it. Contemporary evangelists confess that the kingdom is not part of their evangelistic agenda. This may be easily demonstrated, too, by pointing to the absence of the word kingdom or gospel of the kingdom in tracts claiming to promote the gospel. We conclude, therefore, that there's a startling difference between the Christianity of Jesus and the apostles and what has often been called Christianity for some 1900 years, and it affects the heart of the faith. Throughout the biblical accounts of the preaching of Jesus and the apostles, we find a plain record that the kingdom of God to be inaugurated by Jesus as king of that kingdom is Christianity's principal concept. Throughout church history, there's been a major eclipse of Jesus' central message. It must follow, we contend, that the Christianity of Jesus and the apostles and traditional Christianity are substantially different. To account for that striking difference is our purpose in the chapters which follow.